You are listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast, and this is our review of last night in Soho. What brings you down then? I'm studying London College of Fashion. Room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. If I could live any place and any time I'd live here in London in the 60s. most people ever get to their dreams. They're not just dreams. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. What did you see? Do you believe in ghosts? the murder last night but you believe this was a vision from the past the guy that killed her is still like that i have to stop him where are you going i know what you did i've done a lot of things you can have to be more specific love all right everybody you were just listening to the trailer for last night in soho and the story is as follows in this psychological thriller eloise an aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer sandy but the glamour is not all it appears to be and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter to something far darker. The film is starring Thomas and McKenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, Terrence Stamp, Diana Rigg, Rita Tushingham, Michael Ajayo, and Sinov Carlson. It is written and directed by Edgar Wright, co-written by Christy Wilson Cairns. And here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hello, hello. Danilo Castro. Hello, everybody. And Dan Baer. You can always go <laughs> downtown. We are today talking about the latest Edgar Wright film, a filmmaker who has a very, very passionate fan base. Uh, Danilo, I know you're a pretty massive fan. Uh, Nicole, I actually don't know what your stance is on Edgar Wright. We'll get to that in a minute here. Uh, Dan, I assume, is a fan. Don't really know much about your taste in Edgar Wright either. <laughs> uh, so this will be very, very interesting to go into. This film premiered at the Venice International Film Festival. It is now being released over Halloween weekend right now. And boy, oh boy, are there some very divided opinions on this one. I'm very, very excited to get into it. What I would like to do is maybe save spoilers for the end. Is that acceptable? 
do our best. We'll try. Yeah. Let's dance around and maybe save it for the end, if anything. So hang on to those uh, those plot spoiler-filled details uh, for when we get towards the end of the review here. Let's start off with Nicole Ackman. Nicole, what did you think of Last Night in Soho? So I'm not familiar with all of Edgar Wright's uh, work. I actually really do like the movie Baby Driver, which I watched, I think, last year for the first time. So I was kind of, had been really hopeful about this one until I started talking to people who had seen it. Um, And sort of, I feel like what everyone said was that it's like half of a good movie and then it sort of falls off. And I really agree with that. I think that like I was so vibing with the first even two thirds of this movie. Uh, I think that the design of this film is gorgeous. I think that the performances are really great. I think Anya Taylor-Joy has truly all the like allure and star presence of a like classic Hollywood starlet. Um, And I also really connected to this film in some ways in that like I was older than than uh, Ellie whenever I did. But I also moved to London as a student at one point um, and sort of had to try and figure out that world and, and felt pretty out of my element there at first. Uh, I had a better time than she did, though, I promise. Um, so, you know, even though I really did not like where this film went in its third act, I still think that there is a lot of good in it. And I think that the you know, the aesthetic of it, the music, like there's so much to appreciate here. Okay. Danilo Castro, what did you think of Last Night in Soho? Um, Like you said, I am an Edgar Wright fan. I wouldn't say he's like an all-time favorite, but I always come away enjoying what he brings to the table. There's always something different, really clever. Um, I like the way he sort of you know, ra- unravels film history back on itself, lots of references and that sort of thing. Um, this seemed like a change of pace. And I was excited, especially on the heels of his Sparks Brothers documentary. It's like, oh, he's he's really expanding his palette. You know, I really like that documentary. Um, and so I was excited. I was, I was pretty just blindly optimistic going into this. And I'm going to echo a lot of what Nicole said. Aesthetically, it's great. The setting is really interesting. Um, I like a lot of the needle drops. And I think, uh, like, without getting too far into to spoiler territory, it uh, it kind of all comes undone in the final act. Um, I think this might be something, I don't know how you guys feel exactly, but this is probably going to be something we all hit on at some point. It builds to a point, and then I think it sort of just peters off, uh, which is pretty unfortunate, because I like the first half quite a bit. Um and so I think we get sort of a weird split here. There's there's a lot to appreciate, but there's also a lot that feels eh, kind of squandered. Yeah. Okay. Dan Baer, what do you think? So I got to see this at uh, Toronto International Film Festival early in September, and I have literally not stopped thinking about it <laughs> until now. Um, every day I would just run over and over this in my head because the first act of this movie after the initial, after the initial like scene setting scenes, um, is fantastic. It is a like almost miracle of movie making that 
what Edgar Wright is able to do, especially in that first dream sequence slash time travel back to the 60s slash whatever it is. It's not fully explained, but that's fine. Um, and I was really loving it. And I remember even getting to like the halfway point being, this is fantastic. This is probably Edgar Wright's best movie. Like what, what is he doing that is so amazing? And then, we got to the third act and it just fell off completely. There is one story decision that I get on a on one level, but on every other level, I think it fails the movie. It feels like Edgar Wright and co-screenwriter Christy Wilson-Cairns um, sacrificed narrative and thematic depth and consistency for the sake of a twist because that is what these kinds of movies do and i don't think it's a good look and i don't think it's executed as well as it could have been and it's really disappointing because there this movie has this sort of energy that just swirls around you and envelops you and really takes you into the world right along with Thomas McKenzie's character, Ellie. And like Nicole was saying, Anya Taylor-Joy, gorgeous, and you can't stop looking at her. And again, like just the flawless recreation of the 60s and London is its so good. And then just falls completely off a cliff. And I have never been so deflated by the last act of a movie in a long time. I still really like the first um, half to two thirds, but man, I've been trying to make that ending work in my head a million ways since seeing it at TIFF and even seeing it again last night and just, I can't make it work and it makes me feel so bad. And I like Edgar Wright a lot, but I think when I think about Edgar Wright, I think mostly about his films with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. I think about Hot Fuzz and I think about Shaun of the Dead and The World's End. But his films on his own, Baby Driver and now this, like, ooh, they have third act problems. Mm. I agree with mostly everything that has been said here for the most part. It seems that we're all pretty consistent in terms of how we feel about this movie. And uh, that is definitely surprising to me because I thought there would be at least one person here that probably would have been the uh, – the defender, if you will, that would say, no, this movie is fantastic. It's one of Edgar Wright's best. Because I've seen that take on uh, online quite a bit, actually, from a lot of people. And so that's okay. Uh, I do want to get into specifics later on. But for now, I agree with the fact that the first two thirds are freaking fantastic. Technically, story-wise... I really did not expect that we were going to be spending so much time in present-day London following this um, student who is a fa uh, aspiring fashion designer, played by Thomas and McKenzie, who, for the aspects of being kind of this um, almost naive country girl, fish-out-of-water uh, story to a certain extent, like, I think she's well cast for that element of the story, but later on, there were certain directions that the story started to go in where I started to wonder if she had been miscast uh, altogether. And I think that that highlights the contrast in terms of where this movie does start to go. The marketing has definitely not hidden the fact that this is pretty much a psychological horror movie. And 
it is attempting to do things that movies like, say, I don't know, like Black Swan have done in terms of the deterioration of uh, someone's mental state. And they do try to tie this into uh, Ellie's relationship with her mother, who uh, also suffered from mental illness and uh, killed herself many years prior. And so she's wrestling uh, with those emotions uh, in the present day. There's a lot going on here in terms of setup that I actually found to be very, very intriguing. And I was super into the movie in the very, very beginning, especially not just from that setup for Ellie's character, but also this look back and nostalgia and the idea that nostalgia can be a dangerous thing to uh, rely on for creative inspiration of today, which is very interesting when you take that into context with Edgar Wright's career. Uh, Danilo just did a write-up recently of ranking Edgar Wright's filmography, and there's something that's so apparent when you look at all of his movies, and that is that he is much like someone, say, like Quentin Tarantino, really, really loves digging into cinema history and putting those references into his films. And he's not shy about it. Like, he doesn't try to hide it at all. And so here we're getting uh, a lot of different uh, references and also a lot of uh, connections to the past. And I think it all, all is tying in very well thematically. And there might even be a meta commentary here in terms of Edgar Wright uh, on, on his work. But then... As the plot progresses, more gets added to it in terms of themes and complexity. And then by a certain point, I don't know if the movie knew what it wanted to say anymore because it was trying to say too many different things. And that's where I think the film started to lose me. There are some specific scenes where uh, on a character level, I've got some major issues with, which we'll get into later on here. But I would say the overarching theme of this movie for me started to get lost because too many others started to get added into it. And then all of a sudden, like the story that we started off with, uh, this, this young woman who is ultimately trying to outrun her past and not repeat uh, the same path that her mother went down. It seemed that that started to get lost in a bunch of other stuff that got thrown into this. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I, but I do think that the whole, thing with her past and her mother also went crazy like it just wasn't really used as much as i think it should have been or well as much as i thought it was going to she does have like these scenes where she has conversations with her grandmother on the phone so they do keep kind of coming back to it yeah you know, but throughout they the don't movie do anything with that well that's what I, that's what i'm saying though is that like yeah yeah it's the, these ideas are presented and they're super intriguing and you're like okay this is like the good foundation for an emotionally potent film and that could be very profoundly impactful. And you're right. It just doesn't complete the, the journey. <laughs> it just yeah. feels really weird to suggest that she is sort of like haunted by her dead mother mm-hmm. and then not really do much with it. Right. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, it's a red herring. And this film would have been had such a stronger ending if it wasn't a red herring. I agree. Because that is the emotional core of it at the end of the day. Because I also think that even if all that they were trying to do is sort of show that she has had these sort of like supernatural experiences before, then they should have at least put something in there about like her mom not being the only one that she's ever seen. Mm -hmm. Because I just feel like if that's what they were trying to sort of let us on to, they needed to go a little bit further with it for us to not just think it was about the mom. 
But what I really liked, though, and what I thought this movie was doing super well early on, and Nicole, I actually thought of you while watching it because you are someone that has made some pretty big uh, moves in your life before in terms of uh, switching, you know, geographical uh, areas. Yep. You know, the story of watching someone who is in a completely different town, doesn't know anybody, doesn't know where anything is or how to get around. I, I was super drawn into that, and I thought Thomas and Mackenzie was conveying all of the mixed emotions uh, very beautifully at times, and she was a very sympathetic uh, character for me. Absolutely. I think that like yeah. that sort of basis of the story about being about this girl who is from a small town in Cornwall, which is like this very idyllic part of the English countryside um, visually and sort of the opposite of the big city, moving to London, trying to figure out student halls, meeting up with these like mean girls, I think is really intriguing. And I sort of do wish that we'd gotten a little bit more even about the ways in which her discomfort and her issues adjusting lead her into this sort of other part of the story. And I wish that we'd seen that reflected in the other story a little bit more if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Like, I, I wish that they'd sort of played on whether or not the true is same for Sandy, maybe. Like, has she, is she also going through the same things? Is that mm -hmm. why there's this connection between them? I mean, like, it is the sort of thing where it's a very real thing that whenever you make that kind of move, a lot of people struggle with it. I will say, whenever I was in therapy in New York, I was officially diagnosed with adjustment disorder, uh, mm. which basically just means that you are struggling to make a huge life change. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, she's got it too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think I really wish that they had sort of used that a little bit more to connect the two storylines. Yeah, because that was also a thing that was a point of confusion for me early on was that other than Sandy, uh, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, being a previous tenant in the building that Thomas and Mackenzie's character, Ellie, is currently staying in, I didn't really understand the connection and why this was happening. I, I'm I'm okay with not having to explain the logic of her going to sleep and traveling back into the past through her dreams. That's okay. Like I don't need an explanation for that, you know? Mm. Um, but I did feel that after a little while, what started to really not make sense to me was thematically what was the film trying to say? What was the grand thesis? What was the the message? Um, because it seemed very simple in the beginning. And then at some point, there was just like four or five things it was trying to convey. Especially to, I kept, because I was looking for parallels, I kept expecting one of the storylines in like the modern storyline to take a turn for the sinister. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was actually a disservice and, and I kept the way in which I was waiting for that made me feel very weird about the way in which they were using a specific character. So I was very happy that they mm -hmm. didn't take it that way. But at the same time, I was kind of like, okay, where are any sort of parallels here? Like, what would this connection be? Like, why would this be happening to her? Yeah, I just... I do feel like they didn't connect them well enough. Well, that's the thing. When it is finally revealed sort of the the source of these psychic visions or waking dreams or whatever it is that she's going through that takes her back to the 60s oh god 
it just it feels so disingenuous. See, I actually didn't mind the big reveal at the very end, but part of that was because I liked um, the opportunity that it gave uh, an actor. Yes, but I, I didn't have a problem with that. But it's just in terms of the like thematic stuff that they were working with throughout the movie and the story that the film seemed to be telling about Ellie and Sandy and making connections between them, then having that reveal as to like what the ultimate true story of Sandy was, I felt like, Oh, that's the story you're telling. Right. Because if I'm if I'm going to try and distill this down a little bit, it, it does seem like there was this commentary trying to be laid out in terms of what women had to do in order to get ahead in the past and what women need to do to get ahead today. Yeah. And comparing the two in terms of if they're similar or dissimilar. Yeah. I just don't know if Edgar Wright, this is the first time I think that he's had a female protagonist, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, they say write what you know, and, you know, this is why when Wes Anderson, you know, predominantly doesn't cast people of color in his movies, people get, like, really annoyed, and it's like, well, if he tried to, believe me, you guys would probably think he would do a crappy job. And I do feel like Edgar Wright here, you know, stepped out of his comfort zone, wrote from a perspective that he's never done before, and I don't think he did the best job. <laughs> you know, and that's okay. Um, but I admire that he, you know, did something different. And I also admire too that it isn't the same kind of um, humor and razzle dazzle like editing and things of that nature that we've seen in terms of his comedy films, uh, like you mentioned before, the Cornetto trilogy, uh, Dan, or Scott Pilgrim, or even Baby Driver, which is a straight up action film, but a lot of his movies have contained action before. So in many ways, Last Night in Soho is a departure for him. He's never done horror before. Uh, a lot of the elements that make his movies what they are are not here. But what is here and what you can still sense is you can still sense his love for classic cinema, his love for cinema altogether. And, you know, the craftsmanship is still on display. Even if, like, the story is weak, the craftsmanship is pretty undeniable at times. And I, I admire that he did something different, but it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, you wanted to see Edgar Wright try something different, and here's the result. I, I have to say, like, really, the crafts. That first trip back to the 60s, that is one of my favorite sequences in any movie this year. In just in terms of just how much it made me love movies. <laughs> oh yeah, so gorgeously done. The visual yeah. storytelling, and I don't even want to look at the behind the scenes footage. I don't want to know how they did it. I it is one of those things that it's just this is the magic of movies, and it is so spectacular. And I didn't even need to know. After that point, like, well, is is this a lucid dream? Is it actual time travel? Is it just a vision? Didn't care. Didn't care because the filmmaking is so stunning and so thoroughly puts you in Ellie's shoes. And as the movie goes on, the dream sequences increasingly put you in um, Sandy's shoes, too, that I, I didn't care about the logic of it. 
But then once you get to the plot later in the movie, I did very much care about the logic. <laughs> I, I especially was very much into the cinematography mm, and yeah. the way that mirrors were utilized was very clever. Yes. Um, and I also yeah. got to give a huge shout out to the editing of that because to seamlessly cut back between Thomas and Mackenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy, especially during the dancing uh, sequences, um, mm. I thought the editing there was incredibly well done. Oh, the editing in those dancing sequences is, like, maybe the best editing I've seen all year. And I agree, also, the use of mirrors. And the editing, I guess, around the use of mirrors uh, was just phenomenal. It was, like, it kept blowing my mind, like, frame after frame. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. And even the sound mix, especially as the film goes on and the flashbacks get more sinister, they do some really cool things with the sound mix. That There's some terrific needle drops in this. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that, of course, it's Edgar Wright. The needle drops are flawless. <laughs> I was just going to say this, the, the sequences, I agree with Dan completely. That opening sequence, um, spectacular. It almost feels like the movie was made on the basis so that he could make scenes like that occur. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's to such an extent, I do feel like some of the other sequences, some of the more exposition heavy ones, they almost suffer because I feel like he is putting his all and like his passion and everything into like those flashback scenes. It feels like that's where like the heart of the movie is for him. And and so I do think almost by comparison, some of the other scenes don't quite have that, that, that snap to them. Um, yeah. Which kind of contributes to the inconsistency a little bit for me. See, actually that's okay because I don't feel that the present day timeline needs to have the same oh sure alluring appeal as Absolutely. the yeah as the past yeah because that's supposed to you know that's that's meant to be the contrast yeah 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 uh, but at the same time I, I I agree that every time we did pop out of those sequences and we were back in reality I did find those scenes to be less interesting especially considering I was having a hard time getting invested once again in Ellie's pursuit over what the sequences actually all mean and the mystery behind Sandy. 
there just came a certain point where it didn't matter to me as much. Um, I also started to, you know, get, get a sense that there was some leaps in logic that were starting to happen with the story in terms of Ellie's behavior and how people were starting mm-hmm. to react to her mm-hmm. behavior going a little bit more out of control, where I was just like, yeah, that's not how a regular person would behave in a situation like that. Not in terms of Ellie, but the people around her. I think that hurt it, too, is what you're saying. Like, narratively, I think the biggest holes happen in the present day. Yeah. yeah. Whereas stylistically, all of the benefits are like in the flashback. So it feels like we're almost like front loading one side of the story too much. Um, And I also think it hurts it in that like the flashbacks or whatever you want to call them, the visions are the place where I feel like we as an audience would be more accepting of those holes because like they're visions. Mm -hmm. They're not really meant to make sense, perhaps. Right. Whereas if you're doing something like that, where you're going to have one part of your plot that is confusing and is sort of. Uh, you know, you have questions of whether what's real and what's not, you need for your other part of it to be really solid and really grounded and make sense to be able to contrast with it. So whereas with this, it was kind of like, okay, well, nothing just makes sense anymore. I also really wish that Sandy as a character was allowed to actually be a character in this movie. Because even though during some of those visions, we do start to see scenes from her perspective and our vision becomes Ellie's vision of how she's seeing Sandy. So she is taking control of a lot of the scenes. But at the same time, I never really got a sense of who she was as a person, as a character in this. I think that's the point. I th- but, but even if so, though, it's a little disappointing when you have someone as hot right now in terms of buzz as Anya Taylor-Joy, and we want to see her dig her heels more into the roles that she's being given. You know what I mean? Which I, this is again where I think that they would have benefited from just giving us a few more things about her character in in ways to make her similar to Ellie. Um, right. You know, have her have some more lines about like, oh, I'm new to London. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Or like, um, maybe give her some sort of family backstory that mirrors Ellie's in some way mm-hmm. so that then also you would understand why Ellie becomes so attached to her, not just as a doppelganger for herself sort of in this world, but legitimately for her. I agree completely, Nicole, because then when Ellie does start to get so emotionally attached to the mystery of Sandy and like trying to figure out what actually happened to her, I did find myself questioning why does this matter so much to her? Why does she have to know? So that I do, I think, have an answer for. Okay. Um, because this is something that I really latched onto during the movie is that Sandy is, in just about every way, Ellie's opposite. Okay. She's everything that Ellie wants to be. She is beautiful, glamorous, sure of herself, extremely talented and knows she is. Um, and she has a kind of braveness that Ellie lacks. Mm, And so the more Ellie latches onto her because she's like, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to emulate. And as her story gets darker, Ellie is like, well, but no, that that's not how that story is supposed to go because that's like bad, bad. Like what I'm going through is bad, but this is like murder. (laughs) Yeah, I wish a few things had been you guys pointed to a couple plot threads for Eloise's character that don't really go anywhere or feel like underdeveloped. I wish more had been 
sort of uh, more steps had been taken to draw those parallels out. Because I agree with you, Dan, but I do think there could have been a little bit more hmm. to like really strengthen that so that it was a little more clear for the viewer. Interesting. Uh, what did we think of the supporting performances in this from Matt Smith, Terrence Stamp, Diana Rigg? I will say, okay. I think this movie is perfectly cast. Yeah. I am <laughs> obsessed with Matt Smith in this role in that I think that, like, we've seen Matt Smith do, like, comedic stuff before, and I think he's very good at that. But I've always thought that he has so much potential as, like, a sinister villain-type character. And I think that he's so perfect in this role because he does that thing very well of seeming charming. But I think, at least for me, from the first moment, I was like, "Mm, I don't trust it. Um... (laughs) And I think that he like taps into that very well while never letting it go into a caricature. And I think that some actors could have let it feel too much like they were playing a cliche or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes it feel very grounded and this feels very much like a real man, which mm-hmm. I think also does help with a plot point that happens later in the movie. Um, which is sort of dependent upon Ellie feeling that this is a very real figure if that makes sense to those who have seen it. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, I think yeah, I think helped so. by how grounded his performance in particular feels, but even compared to the other people that we see in this world, uh, even compared to Sandy, I think. I love just seeing Terrence Stamp and Diana Rigg uh, in general. So, like, I don't need them to do much. <laughs> uh, but Terrence Stamp, I thought, like, to Dan's point earlier, was also very perfectly cast here and well-utilized uh, as the silver-haired gentleman I, I guess we'll call him in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Diana Rigg is in her last film role on screen uh, since she, uh, you know, passed away a few years ago. Um, she is just, oh, I, 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 I was, I really liked her in this. I, even, even if like there are some questionable aspects surrounding her character in this, I still was enjoying her relishing in the moment. Oh, yeah. No, she's great. And I love that this is her last film role. I really do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like what a what a performance to go out on. I do like that they added uh, because she she passed in 2020. Yeah. 2020. And, you know, this is obviously coming out a year later. Um, I do like that they added for Diana at the very beginning of the movie before it started. That was very nice touch. Mm -hmm. Beyond that. Should we get into spoilers? I feel like we need to. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I think we're at that point now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. We got to talk about John. Yeah. Yeah. Ellie's love interest in this movie, played by Michael Uh, Ajaho. Yeah, let's talk about this first. We have to. (laughs) Of course we have to. (laughs) I know, but like... uh, So, uh, in the beginning... Just as everything as a common theme with this movie, the setup for him being Ellie's love interest, I thought was sweet. It was cute. It was natural. They have that bit with the Coca-Cola can. I really like that. You know, all well and good. There came a certain point where they start getting, obviously, more romantic. They end up going up to Ellie's bedroom And Diana Riggs' character has made a point to tell Ellie, you're not allowed to have men up there past a certain hour. And Ellie is just so wrapped up in her 
paranoia at this point over what's going on with Sandy. And she starts having the visions while she's about to have sex with this guy and ends up ferociously, you know, kicking him off of her and freaking out. And he's freaking out because he doesn't feel like he did anything wrong necessarily. Diana Rigg comes up the stairs and is all like, are you trying to sexually assault him like her? And it's like, oh, man, the scene just like goes pretty off the rails at this point. And they keep trying to find ways to bring this character back into Ellie's uh, story, which I found to be incredibly unrealistic and super frustrating because I don't care how infatuated you are with her. After that near sexual encounter that turned into a complete disaster, I would never go around that woman ever again. <laughs> ever. I mean, he gets injured, right? On the I mirror. I think he yeah, does, yeah. He's injured on the mirror that gets broken. Yeah. I think, like, I really sort of wish that they had not made that whole thing a romance plotline. I think it is important that Ellie has someone who actually cares about her. I, I thought he was gay at first, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I wish I'm not going to lie, I did a, too. Yeah. I wish they kept it as a platonic thing. Either if he'd been gay or just, you know, they're friends, but he's not trying to get with her. Because I think that, like, obviously, for one thing, like, plot-wise, we sort of need him in a few places. But I just felt like taking it in that way, for one thing, it didn't feel like we had enough time to properly get into that. So, like, in the scenes between them, sometimes I was like, okay, yeah, come on, let's get back to what's actually happening here. Definitely. So I just really struggled with that. And I also feel like there are some weird connotations. Well, yeah, the optics of it, of him being a black man, is yeah. what makes it yeah. highly uncomfortable. I think, I mean, I think it would be sort of uncomfortable anyways. No, of course. But I think that this is a glaring uh, problem that from an optics standpoint, they should have thought this out a little bit better. Yeah. Because it, it, just, it just seems icky at that point. And then beyond that, then he, as I mentioned before, I'm sorry, but I don't know what guy in his right mind is that like in love with somebody that after an experience like that, they would be still mm. ca crawling back and trying to help her out and everything. I, I don't understand. Like he's so, so supportive in the library with her where she's mm -hmm. clearly her hair is a mess. Her eyes look like she hasn't slept in days. She's panicked. It's just like red flags everywhere. What are you doing? It does stretch the boundaries of believability in that regard. Yeah. Do that. He should have been like a childhood friend of hers, um, or some sort of like family friend who is also mm -hmm. just moved to London, so that we would have a reason that he would be that invested and that he would feel, or maybe even you know, if if he's like a, a family friend of hers, maybe even feel sort of responsible for looking after her in some way. Um, because yeah. I agree, like I think he needed stronger motivation to actually keep going with her uh, because like you said he's so supportive and he bounces he bounces right back from that um, <laughs> in a way that does not feel realistic particularly with the optics of all of it yeah yeah and then on top of this the man takes a knife in the belly for her and I, somehow survives this encounter and then the movie's expecting me to believe that their relationship is all 
hunky-dory at the end of this movie. And Ellie gets everything that she wants. And she is a successful fashion designer. Everybody just completely forgot that she tried to assault another student. Everyone just completely forgot that she was running around like a crazy person. And all this murder of... <laughs> You know, Diana Rigg, Terrence Stamp, like all, all these deaths are happening conveniently, like with her being at the center of it all. So the police, I guess, just drop that investigation completely like bullshit. This happy tacked on ending for this movie completely did not buy it at all. Yeah, that I didn't mind so much because it felt a little like giallo genre tropes. But yes, <laughs> everything that you're saying. Absolutely agree. What you mentioned about Ellie earlier, Matt, about being the sympathetic character, you know, her moving this and that, being in a spot where she doesn't know many people, it really strains the likability we have for the character when we yes. look at it from John's perspective. Because she's like, what? Yeah, like the, she's treating him horribly in a multitude of ways. And it's just like he's still there. And so I felt that to Dan's point. I, I think it holds up like genre wise or like homage wise. But but like realistically, it is kind of distracting when you when you wrap up the movie like really not to mention um you know i guess we can reveal it at this point but the reveal at the end of the movie to have diana rigg be sandy and she's always always lived in that house and she's murdered many men who have tried to sleep with her in that house and i guess has the bodies uh stored away in various parts of the house as well once again i love that this gave diana rigg an opportunity to just kind of sink her teeth into this role because I think she is so much fun in that third act with Thomas and Mackenzie. But at the same time, the the fact that that is where the story goes and the twist of it all was one that I... It felt cheap to me. It almost felt like too mm -hmm. obvious at a certain I point. Just, you're telling me she's been written this room out for years and there's bodies in the floorboards and like yeah. it's never come... Like you're telling me she's <laughs> dumb enough to be like... This is where I keep all the bodies of all the men that I murdered. And now I'm going to rid it out to other people. Yeah. I mean, how do you protect the smell? That just doesn't <laughs> so make clean. sense. I so clean. When I say I can't. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, Dan, like you said, you've tried to make it work and you've tried putting it all together. But it's like this third act just keeps throwing one thing after another at us where it's just like... Yeah. At a certain point, I got to just conclude that your storytelling has gone off the rails here. That said, I do love all the shots of the house as it's like going up in flames. Uh, I thought some of the like cinematography oh, in that section was great. really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Diana Riggs decision to also go up in flames with the house was pretty fitting. And the fact that then we're seeing it switch between her and Anya Taylor joy sort of mm. back and forth. That I like really that, cool. that blurring, especially as you know, I think that that really fits in with sort of where Ellie is. Oh, you talking about her going up the stairs? Yeah, and, and yeah. even shots up in the room where it's kind of going between the two of them at times as mm -hmm. as we're getting different angles on it. And I think that that's really fitting sort of to where Ellie's mind is at at that moment. And it is that kind of thing, though, if we see Ellie go through this incredibly traumatic experience mm -hmm. and then the next thing we see of her, she's just like, she's fine. She's having the time of her life. It does feel like I wanted to see... Um, it, it felt jarring. I and the thing is, it doesn't do the la the last little sting, which I was so sure was coming. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, 
I, I think like for me, even seeing her, uh, you know, Sandy in the mirror at the very end, blowing her a kiss, mm. it was just so diluted for me because I, yeah. I'm just sorry. Like I, all I could think about in that third act was <laughs> you almost tried to stab your classmate. Why is she being allowed to do this fucking fashion show? <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I just, even if they were, if they were going to give us that sort of last glimpse that Sandy, like, and it sort of seems to suggest that now Sandy is, you know, going to haunt her in the way that her mother does. Right. Um, I guess. Is that really what they're getting at? I don't know what it was supposed I, to represent. Yeah. I thought I it was. It is. Because we see unclear. her mom in the mirror and then we see Sandy in the mirror as in well. In exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think I just sort of wanted like Sandy to be like horrifically burnt or something. Like I wanted to see like not that the would have been nice of yeah. her that we first saw, but a like sort of gory version of her to give it a little bit more of a sinister feel. Because at that point, like, I mean, like what is sort of the point otherwise of like, is Sandy just going to like happy haunt her now? Like she's just going to like watch over her like her mother does. Like, well, that's like the weird thing about it too, right? It's like, it's almost implied that, yeah, we're going to haunt you, but not in an evil way, like guiding presence sort of way. It's just like such a weird, happy note to end things on. Yeah. And it's like, even after all she's been through, She's still clinging to the past in this way. Mm-hmm. It, it feels again. I, it feels like I, it take anything what away. the film is doing thematically for the entire rest of the movie. Wouldn't, wouldn't it have been more emotionally gratifying to have her make peace with the fact that her mother is no longer with her anymore, and she needs to forge her own path, and she shouldn't have to rely on the past whether it's for creative inspiration or i also think though that there is the implication earlier in the film that you know ellie hasn't seen her mother in london and thus perhaps that is why she is able to be have these traumatic experiences happen Mm -hmm. to her in the way like she has lost her mother's watching over her in some way and thus this all happens so then it it kind of breaks that logic if she can then be haunted by both of these women because it seems like if her mother has come back then the sinister thing should be gone but i also think if they wanted to have that sort of be the thing where like oh and now sandy is also going to like watch over her in some way they needed to make her bond with that character more strongly mm-hmm. i think in earlier scenes with Diana Rigg where like I could see that they could have played it in a way where like you know Diana Rigg's character like really does take her under her wing a little bit more and maybe there is a scene where you know um she gets followed home by someone or something and Diana Rigg's character sort of scares them off beats them off takes care of her in that way to sort of show that like she went through all of this terrible stuff with men because I do think that the movie's trying to make some sort of point about the fact that men ain't shit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and she's trying to make sure that Ellie doesn't have these experiences. Then it would make sense that, okay. And at the end of the day, like all this comes out about the bad things that she's done, but they come to peace with each other. She goes up in yeah. flames and she's going to keep watching over Ellie from the other side, but they don't set any of that into place no. for that last bit no. to make sense. No. So I just, yeah. I feel like there were a lot of opportunities if they wanted to actually make some sort of point with this movie or like make things make sense. And instead they tried to like do everything. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Like you could have lost the romance plot line and instead had more of that and have 
have Ellie bond with Sandy in both timelines more strongly. Mm-hmm. And it also would have made her attachment to Sandy in the past make more sense, uh, even before, you know, that she somehow feels her connection to her, even though she doesn't know that it's her. I, I just think that there was so much potential here and it kind of got squandered. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Completely. Any other uh, spoiler bits that you guys want to mention? Um, In what world is it even a remote possibility that Terrence Stamp is Matt Smith grown up? I'm sorry. Okay. I did buy into (laughs) it a little bit. I did. But I – sure. Matt Smith has such a distinctive – Different different jawlines. But it's not the the worst thing in the the world. The way that his – is his um, forehead is so far over his? It's not the worst thing I've seen in the world. Well, it's actually, been rough. That's to the character. We could just I we could make say assumptions. Though, I think that like even if you look at like their speaking cadences and stuff, mm. uh, they don't match up that well. Yeah. Like I think that the looks alone are not the biggest issue. So I think that like whenever there was a spoiler, but like it's not him. I was like, well, yeah, of course it's not. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the idea, right? Like how can it be a complaint that they're not that similar if like in the end it's because they really weren't well, because, actually like, the same we person. We need to believe yeah, with that, Ellie that believes, they are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because I don't yeah. think that we're meant to doubt Ellie. They could have mirrored each other's performances a little bit more to make it yep. a little more vague, but they didn't bother. And yeah, it made the reveal not that surprising to anybody. Yeah, that's no, the, not yeah. at all. That scene is really good when it's finally revealed, but also like, oh, yes, Sandy. Like, dude, that was 60 years ago. <laughs> you really remember one like she was that and there was one, just one Sandy in your entire career. I mean, you saw her, Dan. I mean, yeah. I I, remember her that many years later. Right. But, like, I I don't know. It When he says, like, you gotta have to remind me, I've done a lot of things. And I'm like, oh, and you remember this one girl who you, like, <laughs> I don't know. Now, with that said, Diana Rigg being an older Anya Taylor-Joy, I don't know why, but for some reason, I actually, I actually did buy into that a bit more. Yeah. It definitely worked. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that partially because... What we're seeing of Anya Taylor-Joy is such a sort of put-on performance within a performance mm-hmm. um, that the fact that her mannerisms, her speaking, are not all that similar makes sense. Because when we're seeing her as an old woman, um, you know, that's that's just her being her. She's not sort of putting on this glamour anymore. So it doesn't need to match in the same way. Whereas I would have liked to have seen some more similar like body language and stuff to make us believe in, you know, buy into the the other connection there uh, Mm. so that we were more, because I do think it's important that as an audience, we should be on board with Ellie. We should think that she's right. We shouldn't be looking at her and being like, damn, she is crazy uh, in the way that people around her are. And I think that that is also part of like where the film starts to lose us um, in that, like not only, do we see her like go to stab another student and not get any consequences for it? Uh, but we aren't entirely on board with her connections that she's making and sort of her logic jumps. Yeah, no, I, I completely at a certain point had lost almost all sympathy for Ellie as a character in that third act. Yeah. And honestly, but, but at a certain point, I just kind of stopped caring altogether because it didn't see, it didn't feel like Edgar Wright was completing the 
grand thesis of what the movie was mm-hmm. ultimately about either. Um, because, you know, we've spent a lot of time here talking about how there was all this intriguing setup and then all this messiness in the third act that kind of renders it incomplete, useless, unfulfilling, however, like whatever you want to throw at it. I don't know. It's it's like, Danilo, if I were to ask you, what is Last Night in Soho ultimately about? What is Edgar Wright trying to tell us? What would you boil it down to? I think the things I would hit on would be stuff that was established in the first part, which would be sort of the perils of nostalgia. And mm-hmm. then obviously, like I would say it's commenting on toxic masculinity. Those would be the two things I think it, that are, are trying to get explored here. But if you're asking me at the end of the movie, I, there's more things and I'm probably less confident trying to like pull those things apart. Dan. Yeah. It, it appears to be about the, the dangers of nostalgia and how the past doesn't always make sense looking at it through the lens of today. But I I think it fumbles that message at, with the third act. Nicole. I really do think that like at its core, the one thing that it sort of, actually does succeed in is saying that you know but it's such an unnuanced look at like men are terrible um right and that it's it is it is a difficult world for women and particularly young women uh, Mm -hmm. particularly unprotected young women in large cities uh which are all true statements (laughs) like no yeah um, Maybe it's, you know, the fact that Ellie survives all this stuff and Sandy, in a way, didn't. It's saying something about, like, the importance of community and friend having friends and family and people who love you to support right. you like, through difficult times. Loved... But, like, that is that is such a backseated theme throughout the first two thirds of the movie. <laughs> I would have really loved for us to have seen, because I do think like like I said, there's so many things that they could have taken from this. I would have loved for them to have actually dug into the fact that like the reason that all of this is able to happen to Sandy in this way is because she does not have a support system and because yeah. there is no one there for her. Whereas Ellie at least has her grandmother. She has this friend. She mm-hmm. has the woman who I guess probably owns or runs the uh, pub that she's working at who are people who are looking after her she even has this female detective or policewoman or whatever um who genuinely seems to care about what happens yeah. to her yep. and Good that, call out that there. is what makes the difference for ellie um and that is why she doesn't do this i think if they had just not had ellie go full tilt crazy and upset mm-hmm. in her obsession with trying to solve this mystery aka don't have her try to stab Joe Costa. Don't have her go to the police station and file a report trying to find out who Sandy is. Like, don't have her running around the streets frantically panting and so on and so forth. Like, if you take out all these bits that would up her level of exposure to have her suffer any consequences, like, if this was more of a internal uh, struggle for her, And we were able to somehow, you know, connect with that and tie that into her past trauma with her mother. I think that this could have been so incredibly powerful and this really, really would have worked. But when you start introducing all those other bits with John, the boyfriend, and, you know, like I said before, that scene in the library and 
now the police are involved and it, yeah. you're gonna tell me that she gets away from all this completely unscathed like can i ask you guys this question the house goes up in flames sandy is is dead at this point right how does ellie explain to the cops exactly what happened here because you're not gonna find the they body. would know that that's where she's residing john has been stabbed there's already probably been a report filed that she tried to stab another student if i'm the cops i'm saying ellie stabbed the boy and killed her landlady <laughs> I, nicole God, is yeah. there some commentary about the london police in this movie that <laughs> we're <just laughs> the stealth theme of this movie <laughs> um, no, but I mean, it just occurred to me. I really wish that instead of having this like roommate Jocasta or whatever become like the weird like villainous student, they could have done it with that boy that she interacts with at that first party who's a dick to her. Because imagine how much more interesting the parallels would be if she almost stabs a male student. Mm. Oh yeah. After she's okay. had all these visions of Sandy stabbing these men. Yeah. yeah. Like, God, I wish we'd gotten that. There's so many ways that they could have paralleled them better. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think like that she would have had a probably an easier time getting off from. Like that sounds bad, but it's or just lean yeah. into this story and make it more like um, <laughs> mind the deep cut here. Make it more like frequency. Oh, oh, um, oh. with the movie okay. with Jim Caviezel and Dennis Quaid. Yeah, movie. And like make it more like she is trying to save her mother from across time and space in the present and then realizing that she can't like you can't change the past it is pointless to try to live in the past because it's the past is dead like then you can make it more emotional and have more of a through line with the, all they, that stuff about her mother they could have even done some interesting stuff around like in these first scenes where we see sandy in these visions there is this understanding that like sandy and ellie are in some way becoming interchangeable Yes. And Sandy is Ellie to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I think they could have done some really cool stuff with some of the Slayer things, like where she almost stabs someone of the line of her literally having lost grip on, is she Sandy or is she Ellie? And sort of tied that through a bit more that they are sort of merging in some way uh, that would have explained Ellie's behavior more because a lot of what she does does seem really out of character and i think that they could have explained some of it if they played more into this fact that ellie is losing grip on whether or not she is sandy at some point like she dyes her hair to look like her and then they sort of abandon that part of all of this uh i was just gonna uh, echo what nicole said there I, I do think that was an angle that was kind of unexplored and i really thought they were going that way past a certain point and was sort of getting excited for that but again it's just it's it's a little more unrealized potential so at this point, what I want to do is I want to get over the final thoughts. Um, if we not if we have not already said them uh, or if there's something you just want to reiterate, uh, Dan Bear, I pass it over to you first. Final thoughts on last night in Soho. My final thought on this movie is that this dress that Ellie is making in her fashion design class that the her professor keeps praising. I'm like, she is literally redesigning an actual dress that was worn by someone in the 1960s. <laughs> and the teacher is like, oh my gosh, this incredible design. I'm, what? I, I was a little confused by that too. I was like, why does this warrant so much praise right now? Are, are the other students just not 
that good, like, at all. And I'm like, like, at one of the, like, top fashion universities in right, the world. Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> like, what is she doing that is so special here? Yeah, it is such, like, an actual 60s period dress. Like, maybe the techniques are really difficult, and that's why the the teacher is so into it. But, like, you would think that she would know that this is, like, an actual dress. I don't know. I mean, like, what is um the very, very beginning, I think, of the movie, right, where Ellie uh, comes into her room and she's wearing... Yes, made out of newspapers. Yeah, like, see, like, I look at something like that and I say to myself, oh, that's more bold and, you know, stylistically daring than whatever this is yeah. <laughs> right now. Sorry, Edgar Wright, but Cruella did it first. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yep. I was thinking the same thing. Anything else, Dan? No, just like, I I love so much about the look of this film and the performances. And it, that it's just like a really, really pity about that last act. Danilo. Beautiful to look at. Beautiful gowns. Beautiful gowns. I do like the performances. I think the setting is really interesting. Uh, it has all the ingredients that I would want going in, but... I don't think the meal was particularly good. And so that's always the most disappointing kind of meal. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's where I'm at with this. Nicole? I really do want to highlight the fact that I think that Thomas and Mackenzie does a really good job with this role. I actually really liked her in this, um, particularly in the first half of the movie. I think she does really well. And particularly in sort of building her obsession with Sandy and just the way that she looks at Sandy, I think, is really sort of moving in a way. And I also think Anya Taylor-Joy in this role, my God, like, you know, you talk sometimes about people who have, like, the it factor. And I think Anya Taylor-Joy absolutely has it. And I think that this is the sort of role that you have to have someone in uh, who does have that. And I think that she really captures, like, the spirit of not necessarily the 60s, but what particularly like we as young women idolize of the 60s. And I just think that she's really phenomenal at sort of building up this very glamorous character and then letting her sort of get broken down and chipped away at. And I think that as much as that sort of final uh, bit of the third act had me like, okay, like really what the hell are we doing now? Anna Taylor-Joy was so fun to watch in like those scenes like of her going up the stairs so I really do think that in a lot of ways uh the two lead actresses saved this for me I thought that the ghosts and the visual effects work that were done on the ghosts of these men were pretty poor and them also muttering like help us was very very lame it was quite disappointing because the horror elements of this from a technical standpoint i found some of it to be fun almost like in a sam raimi sort of way at times like i was reminded of like drag me to yeah. hell in certain bits in terms of the ferocity of the camera the editing the sound work and i thought like edgar wright was having a blast but uh for some reason every time they went back though to those ghosts i completely lost interest right away i just thought that they're visual look was uninspired and uh yeah that was not that was not good for me i would love to see this movie with a better script but this idea but made by del toro 
like someone oh, who's like, very yeah. good at doing that sort of horror-y, ghostly haunting stuff. Like, I would love to see what this would have looked like visually. Devil's backbone, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the soundtrack to this movie is great as per the course of a Edgar Wright film. Might even be one of his best, honestly, especially if you are into, as Nicole is very much, uh, record players of the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Thompson McKenzie's performance here, I think she's really good in the first half where she is playing this new student who seems out of her element but she's very talented i think she's well cast for that but there are certain things that this role asks her to do at times where i really honestly did not feel that she pulled it off it's just a disappointment for me unfortunately uh but the technicals are really good god the cinematography the costume design the production (laughs) design yep gorgeous there's a lot of really good stuff here on a technical level it's Probably Edgar Wright's, yeah, I would say it's his best from a craft standpoint that he's done so far. Yeah. It's definitely up there. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe Scott Pilgrim versus the world maybe comes close. But, I mean, yeah. yeah. Very two totally different types of films in, mm-hmm. that, in that regard. So. Very. Um, I am giving this oh, an incredibly mixed five out of ten. Ooh. Nicole? I'm so torn on this. I actually think I am a week seven. Uh, I know that I just like... That's higher than I thought it was going to be. I know. I just talked down the film so much, but the performances and the crafts are so Mm -hmm. undeniable for me that... And I do think that like there's so much potential in the first half of the script is so good that I'm I'm teetering between a six and a seven, but I'm going to go with a seven. Danilo? I think I'm going to split the difference and go with a six here. It is really visually appealing, and the first half is really good, and I, I do think it's worth seeing. Uh, so I do want to kind of bump it up. Where originally I think I would have thought about giving it a five, but six. Dan Bear. Yeah, I feel bad because I've spent a lot of time like really ragging on this movie. I think like, but in the end, like the first half of it is so enjoyable and so well done that. I was when I first saw it, I ended up being like a week seven. And after a second time, I I toyed with going down to a six, but the parts that about it that I liked, I really like like loved. So I'm still at a very weak seven. And as far as Oscar potential for this movie goes, yeah. you know, we spent a lot of time here talking about crafts, but it's one of those movies where I personally think that it's not going to show up anywhere. Only if it makes like really a lot of money at the box office, which I don't see happening. Even then, I only see it showing up probably in costumes. Costumes, production design. Yeah. And even then, I'm still weary on that because costume is such a stack category this year that I yeah. don't see how mm-hmm. this holds up against other movies that have best picture potential. Yeah. I, I wonder if it could get into visual effects just based on those dream sequences and the switching between um, Anya and Thomason so much. Well, as I mentioned earlier about those ghosts, if it got into visual effects, I would be so pissed. <laughs> yeah. It has to make the shortlist first, and I don't know if it will. Yeah. What about hair and makeup? I Maybe. Like, the makeup uh, is showy, but not 
I don't know that there are a lot of effects, and I feel like you yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's other, particularly if they're whenever they're you know doing that, they tend to always have a few period films, and I think that there's other ones this year that have showier work in them. Even something like The Last Duel, I think, has showier like effect type makeup, like with that scar on Matt Damon. Uh, that I feel like could be out this. You know what this would have gotten a nomination for if they still had the split categories? This would have gotten maybe a lone sound nomination in either editing or mixing. Yeah, a sound mixing nomination for this would have been very, very nice, but it's not going to happen now. No, not with a category of just five nominees. Absolutely not. No. But I could have very easily have seen this popping up possibly with just a lone sound nomination. That's the only nomination the movie receives. I could totally have seen that in a different year. Oh, well. All right. Nicole Ackman, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the Internet. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd at Nicole Ackman 16. Danilo Castro. You can find me on Twitter at Danilo S. Castro. And Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dancing Dan on Film. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Last Night in Soho here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.